Lord be with you. Welcome to worship at Fellowship Church. Whether you are joining us from afar online or if you are with us in the sanctuary, we are all fellow pilgrims on this journey of Lent as we anticipate, as we hope, as we yearn for the good news of the cross and the resurrection. But we're all people that are waiting or yearning for something, aren't we? At the bare minimum, those of us who are in the sanctuary this morning are yearning for spring. What the mm, is going on out there with all this snow? Come on, at the middle of March. But on a deeper level, some of us are yearning for goodness after a really rough week. Or maybe some of us are yearning for hope amidst some spiritual trial that we are facing. Or maybe some of us are yearning for justice after an injustice that we have experienced ourselves. Pilgrims who find themselves yearning, hoping, longing for some good news. Well, we are not alone because throughout the scriptures, people testify to being in this place of waiting, of yearning, anticipating something better. And so we will use the words of the psalmist as our call to worship this morning as uh, they also anticipated some good news. We wait for the Lord, our souls wait, and in his word we hope. Our souls wait for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O church, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. Let us stand and sing to the one who has the power to redeem.
Morning, as we pray together, um, we're going to invite you to kind of preview a practice, uh, a practice that we call praying the scriptures or praying the Psalms. Uh, you can read a little bit more about this practice on the card that you were given on the way in. This is our Lenten practice of prayer for the week. Um, praying scripture or praying the Psalms is a, a way of um, meditating on or inhabiting a particular prayer or psalm or teaching or a hope that we find in the scriptures. 
in this practice, the words of the scriptures become our own words of prayer as we inhabit the text, as we place ourselves within the text, as we internalize the words of the text, so that eventually, through our meditation, the words of the scriptures become authentic to us and to our experience of our triune God. And the best part is that rather than having to search for the words to pray to God, the words of the scriptures can actually become the very words that we offer to God, such that when we say those words in our hearts or out loud, all we do is conclude with the word, amen. So today we're going to try this out. We're going to pray these words silently to ourselves as I read them um, here in our midst. And eventually we're going to sing those words. And after we sing those words, uh, we will just simply say, amen. Today we're going to focus on Psalm 2714, which is a Psalm of David. Uh, and in this Psalm, Psalm 27, you may notice at some point a little note in your Bibles that says that this is um, a Psalm of David from when he wasn't yet anointed. Um, this little clue is a little bit of context that means that David was not yet the king. He was not yet anointed the king at the time. Saul was the king, and David, David was a fugitive on the run from Saul. David uh, was on the run from King Saul and King Saul's army, wandering in the wilderness, not sure if he could ever return home, not sure who he could trust, not sure how Saul would attack him, not sure what he would do if he ever got Saul alone. With all this in mind, this morning I invite you to inhabit the counterintuitive words of David in his psalm. Would you pray with me? Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This morning we pause to feel the dry, dusty air of the wilderness, to feel the rapid heart rate and racing thoughts of fear. And this morning, like David, we pause to take refuge in our God. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This morning we pause so that the Holy Spirit can make us aware. Show us the places in our heart, in our life, in our relationships that desperately need the presence and the deliverance of the Lord. Places where there are knots in our stomachs, places where there is angst and anxiety and frustration. Wait. For the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This morning we pause so that the Holy Spirit can show us the places 
the very places where God is inviting us to grow in patience and the art of active waiting. Places where we need courage to discern rather than go our own way. Places where we need courage to wait rather than react. Places where we need courage to trust rather than flee. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Join us as we sing these words as our own prayer to the Lord. Together we say, amen. Would you stand and let's sing together.
Sisters and brothers, it is because of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection that we have peace with God and also with each other. The peace of Christ be with you. As you are comfortable, I invite you to share a sign of that peace. Those of you in the online chat, greet one another. Welcome again uh, to Fellowship Church. My name is Nate Skipper, and I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, uh, I look forward to that sometime. Our mission here at Fellowship Church is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you are new or visiting with us, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, If you would like to make yourself known to us, we have these connection cards that you can fill out online, or there's some at the Welcome Center or at the back of the sanctuary uh, as a way for us to get to know you a little bit better. For those of you that have been around here for a while, you might know that on the back of the bulletin, there's some care concerns. This is a way for us as a body to pray for one another. Uh, Regretfully, one person was missing on there uh, that uh, was hospitalized this weekend, Randy Cooley. And we uh, would like to invite you to pray for him and for Judy as they got some hard news this week that he might be going under hospice care soon. Uh, So we're praying for Randy and for Judy as they uh, face an uncertain future. 
Uh, also in your bulletin, uh, everybody gets one of these, is uh, our little uh, Lenten practices uh, that include both prayer, as we just did, uh, and also an invitation to fast, but also these mercy practices, uh, which are based on Matthew chapter 25, a little bit later on from where we're reading it this morning, uh, some of the ways in which Jesus distinguishes those who do and those who don't. Um, and one of the ones that we did last week uh, was about sheltering those that didn't have a home, and so we worked at Habitat for humanity. Big thanks to those that helped out on Friday. We hung some drywall. Uh, some of us learned how to hang drywall and others of us were patient uh, and waited well uh, as we uh, slowly hung drywall. But this week's uh, practice is something that we can all be a part of, uh, and that is uh, the I- imploring of Jesus uh, to clothe those that don't have clothes. So the way in which we're uh, inviting you to consider practicing this uh, is by, yes, of course, you can give uh, clothes to your local favorite thrift store. Some of them are even mission partners of Fellowship Church, and one of them we even get a little uh, kickback back for them for your donations. But the one that we'd like to invite everybody to for next week is to bring an article of clothing to worship that you would like to give to someone else. If you're like me, you're probably thinking, yeah, I got lots of clothes I need to get rid of, or maybe some clothes I need to get rid of, uh, and I'll bring a whole bag for you, Nate. And we're, no, we don't want that. We want you to bring one item of clothing that would be a little bit of a sacrifice to give up. Maybe a piece of a shirt or a pair of pants that you wear often that you think might benefit someone else as an act of self-sacrifice, as an act of giving, uh, not out of our abundance, but out of something that we uh, appreciate. So we'll have a bin for, uh, uh, in the atrium for you to drop off an item of clothing, just one, uh, that we'll bring over to Community Action House, uh, one of our uh, favorite mission part- Not We don't have favorites, but a, a local mission partner that we really like. We uh, have been talking all through Lent about prayer, fasting, and mercy, acts of mercy, Um, but the old traditional way of talking about uh, ways in which we inhabit Lent is prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Almsgiving is a way of us, uh, is put simply giving money, giving our resources uh, for the sake of something else or for the sake of God's purposes in this world. Not because we have to, but because we get to. And so if you uh, would like to uh, practice that giving, uh, we do that because, uh, uh, yes, we get to, uh, but also because it's a way in which we practice uh, the generosity uh, that God has planted in our hearts. We, uh, Jesus said that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So if you would like to take part in this act of faith, in this act of discipleship, in this act uh, of giving, uh, you can do that through the offering bowls at the back of the sanctuary, um, but also by giving online. We're going to highlight one more artist uh, this week who gave of their gifts uh, through, for, through art. Check out this short video. Hi, I'm Sandy Schultz, and I did a watercolor called The Garden, and it is about Jesus struggling in Matthews when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to his father to relieve some of the struggles that he knew he was going to be facing in the very near future. We as humans struggle every day. He as a human was struggling at night too. So go to him for prayer. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy. Uh, You can check out all the art for the Lent uh, out on the gallery wall uh, following the service. 
Children ages three through fifth grade are invited to their places of worship while the rest of us stand uh, and worship together. So 
Let's pray together. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is our habit, a formational habit, to gather on Sunday mornings to worship you. Certainly, we could be doing anything else, but we gather to sing and to pray and to open your book, hoping and trusting that it will be for us a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And today I pray that you would make it so again, even now, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Friends, if you haven't noticed yet, there is a theme to this uh, service this morning that feels a bit Adventy, doesn't it? We're waiting together. That's because we've now shifted into the fifth of five major discourses of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. You can see them mapped out there on the screen there. We've already been through the first and most famous one, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. We've been through the Sending Sermon in chapter 10 and the Kingdom Parables in Matthew 13 and the Sermon to the Church in Matthew 18. And now we're into that last block called the Sermon on Last Things, Matthew 24 and 25. And this last sermon of Jesus is robust and it can be a bit confusing because Jesus is speaking of multiple things simultaneously in this section. First, he's teaching about a soon coming historical event, the fall of Jerusalem. Then also he's speaking about the last Days, which is Bible speak for that time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, the last days. And he's also speaking about the last day, the day of the Lord or the return of the king, the last day. But I must admit that I don't naturally love this passage. As a pastor, I feel the pressure not to be embarrassed about any scripture because we know that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And that is true. But I will admit that I'm occasionally a little embarrassed about this particular last major discourse of Jesus. Not because of what Jesus actually says in it, though, but rather because of the way that so many people Christians especially, have used and abused it throughout the years. How many of you have ever gone to see the fireworks show and encountered a preacher barking at you through a bullhorn to turn or burn? How many of you have been driving down the highway somewhere and passed by a billboard that announces Armageddon soon, somehow? Certainly throughout the ages, there have been no shortage of people who want to put the emphasis on the what and on the when of these last things, on the temperature and the timing of those last days. And yet Jesus throughout seems to be repeating a different, different emphasis. He says, be ready, be alert, be faithful, always. 
So if you zoom out and look at this, you'll see some of the themes that are in the passage that Jesus offers. Let's go to the next slide there. You'll see the thing starts with the disciples coming to Jesus and saying to him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus' immediate answer is, watch out that no one deceives you. And then after that, while talking about all kinds of future things, Jesus says repeatedly that many things will happen, but that's not the end yet. Then he says about the day and the hour, no one knows. No one knows. Four times over he says that. Only God knows. And then also repeatedly he says, so stay awake. Be alert. Keep the faith. And be ready at all times. With that stuff in mind, I invite you to hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love, this very sermon of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 1, where he says this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish or silly, and five of them were wise. When the foolish took their lamps... They took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Waiting. Yes, waiting. The waiting, says singer and songwriter Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part. Anybody here enjoy waiting? Yeah, me neither. Recently, there was a study done by Timex Corporation, the company that makes watches. They conducted a survey to test our willingness to wait. And so in a variety of situations, they asked, how long are you willing to wait before you begin to lose your cool and freak out a bit? So how long are you willing to wait at a traffic light, for example? Survey says 50 seconds. How long are you willing to wait at the doctor's office? 32 minutes. Wow. How long are you willing to wait as people talk too loudly in a movie theater before you shush them? One minute and 52 seconds is what the survey says. How long are you willing to wait for your significant other to get ready? <laughs> 21 minutes. How long are you willing to wait in line at Starbucks before you freak out? 
seven minutes, according to this survey. How long are you willing to wait for someone who is late to a job interview? Two minutes and six seconds. Emphasis on the six seconds, apparently. How long are you willing to wait in airport security? 28 minutes. Another one that we endure a bit more. Last one. How long are you willing to wait for a promise made to be a promise kept? They didn't actually survey that one. I've added it in because it speaks directly to our willingness to wait for Jesus as he is the one who has promised to come again. He has promised a second coming. And as Matthew is writing his gospel to the early readers of it, the early church, they had already been waiting years, possibly even decades, and it felt pretty long. But today, we've been waiting millennia, haven't we? 2,000 years and counting. And the waiting is the hardest part, isn't it? As we wait for this promised last day of Jesus, like the disciples long ago, it is really tempting for us, and we are prone to wonder about the what and the when. What will happen? And when will it happen? These are some of the things that folks talk about and are drawn out from our scriptures. Lightning, darkness, famine, earthquakes, wars, and rumors of wars. The mark of the beast Rapture is a kind of added-in 19th century conversation, not necessarily historical Christianity, but it's been added in robustly on the what will happen side. And then there's also the questions of when will it happen? Will it happen when the time is ripe? When all have heard the gospel? After false prophets come? After persecution? After a great tribulation? Is it coming soon? Shall we stay awake? Are you still waiting? Or have you given up on waiting altogether? Because it's taking too long. Up there you can actually see there are plentiful adventures in missing the point that we can take. We can make this all about the what and about the when. But Jesus promised to return himself. It's about the who more so than the what and the when. As I've studied this text this week especially, I couldn't help but think of a famous fairy tale, one that I'm sure you know, the fairy tale of Goldilocks and the three bears, Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and Baby Bear. The story is familiar enough. I s suspect you know it. Goldilocks wanders into their home and starts trying out all of their stuff, their bed, their chairs, their porridge, and more. She finds out that some things are too much. Papa Bear's things are just plain too big, ill-fitting, excessively large. Other things are too little, like Baby Bear's bed or breakfast. It's not enough. The middle stuff, Mama Bear's stuff, is the stuff that's just right. It's not an awkward excessiveness. It's not a kid-sized portion that's not enough. It's just right. So it is also sometimes in our eschatology, which is the big church word for end times theology, too much is too much, and too little is too little. 
There have been plenty of examples of this throughout history. Let me give you a few of them. Too much focus on the what are these familiar examples. Uh, a new prediction genre that has really kind of steamrolled into our world since about the 1970s. It is the self-proclaimed keys to the prophetic puzzle. It approaches the scriptures a little less as gospel and more about a da Vinci code kind of thing that we must unlock and figure out. It maps biblical details onto modern events and mentions things like Antichrist and Armageddon and reading the times and seeing the signs kinds of things. I'll say again, this is not historical Christianity necessarily, but it is a very popular thing that has risen up among us. And the Left Behind series is uh, among the best-selling books in America to Christians besides the Bible. Very interesting. It has some historical remnants, though. So, and this one is much more understandable. In London, in the year 1666, notice the number, of course. Ding, ding, ding. Bells are ringing if you're paying attention to those kinds of things. 666. It was also a time just before where the, uh, the plague, the bubonic plague, had a resurgence. And so people were dying, and it felt like the mark of the beast. And then London had a great fire in 1666, like the Chicago fire. And all of a sudden, the world around you is on fire, and people are thinking, this must be the end. It wasn't. That's too much focus on the what, reading the times. There's also possible to have too much focus on the when, and we've had plenty of examples of this as well. This one's maybe obscure, but interesting. Edgar Wisenant in 1988, wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Catchy title, right? Don't you think? He says, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. We'll just leave that out there for you. Very interesting. He makes his calculations based on Adam's creation and Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and all these kinds of things. Then you have the one in the middle that many of us know we lived through it, right? The expectation that Y2K would be the end, and it would be the end in biblical proportions. That article from Time Magazine includes biblical language in it about this time. Some people are still eating the canned food that they stored up from that era. And then there's Harold Camping in 2011, rather recent actually, citing biblical math and 99.9% certain that it would happen. And you can see there were marches and, all and billboards and all kinds of things announcing that it would happen on May 21, 2011. I learned this from our, one of our very own, Suzanne McDonald, uh, who was here in the first service. She is a professor of systematic the theology. And in 2011, she was teaching at Calvin College and was literally teaching a course on eschatology end times theology. And the joke that was running throughout that course was, should we do our homework? Should we prepare for the final exam? All these kinds of things that was going on while this was happening at that exact same moment. On the opposite side of too much is too little. And we know this perhaps all too well. It's maybe a little uh, uncomfortable to admit. It is possible to have too little emphasis too, too little focus on being ready at all. And we do it by having endless distractions or entertainments, so much so that the return of Christ is out of sight, out of mind. Or we have other priorities. We have other preoccupations. We, we have ourselves invested in something else, and this thing matters to me the most right now. I'll care about that other thing later, we think, which is the emphasis of too little 
on being ready. If we look back at the story Jesus tells, I think there's some really interesting details worth paying attention to. Notice first that this parable begins uniquely by saying that the kingdom of heaven will be like. Most of the parables begin with a similar formula. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then a comparison unfolds. This is the only one that has a future tense. It will be like. It plants the seed of almost us imagining ourselves gathering one day in the kingdom of the ages at the table of our Lord and reminiscing about whether we were ready or not at the time. Notice, second, in the parable that all of the bridesmaids are invited and they have torches. This is not a story of insiders versus outsiders. All of them were selected to be bridesmaids. They are all there, and they are all expecting the arrival of this groom. And I think that there is some uh, worth in noting that it is a joyful processional, that this is a joyful relational expectancy, a hope. Jesus could have told this story using any other kind of analogy, He chose a wedding party. There is gladness and relational stuff going on in this particular story. Notice also, however, all 10 bridesmaids go to sleep. The problem is not resting. The problem is readiness or not being ready. And to be Christian, loosely, is to be ready. We don't need to be drinking monster energy drinks all the time or taping our eyelids open in order to be perpetually hypervigilant. We are to be ready. Contrary to an obsessive anxiousness about the what and the when of things, this parable actually normalizes rest. And remember, rest was a part of the story, the creation story from the very start, built into the very model of being and, and it's promised in the Psalms, Psalm 127, that the Lord gives sleep to the ones that he loves. All ten brides go to sleep. But when the groom is delayed, five of the ten bridesmaids run out of oil. That's really the problem in this particular parable. And they're called silly because they are unprepared for this moment. This is the story, by the way, in which we get the fun VBS songs that you've probably sung before. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning, burning, burning. You know this, right? Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me gas in my Ford. Keep me trucking for the Lord. Do you know these, the lost verses? (laughs) Give me wax on my board. Keep me surfing for the Lord. We could do that for a while. VBS circa 1990. This is good stuff. But in the story, the oil running out suggests a, a, um, a stark truth to us. It reminds us that some things can't be borrowed, and too late is too late. Now, today, this is the time, this is the age of grace, and grace abounds. Ask, seek, knock, the door will be opened, all of the good things, grace abounds. But there is a time, this suggests, that is too late and too late is too late. And the point of the parable, therefore, seems to be simply to be ready, always. Not anxiously fretting, that's too much. Not being clueless or careless about the return of the king, that's too little. Rather, just be ready. That's just right. 
If you go back and read this whole sermon of Jesus, Matthew 24 and 25, I think that you'll begin to notice that this balance of too much and too little is built right into it. And Jesus almost seems to contradict himself in the midst of this big sermon. But in an important and an intentional way, I think, as he's speaking about the final things, Jesus first warns against assuming too long of a delay in his second coming, so much so that we become secular, we become irreligious, we become not caring at all. And this is, of course, a temptation for us in our day when it has been so long that we have been waiting. It's easy to begin to think that it's never going to happen. But it is, said Jesus, and it will surprise you by its suddenness. And then he offers the opposite advice, tells other stories that make the other point. He warns against assuming no delay, so much so that you might quit your job today assuming that Christ will return tomorrow. The five silly bridesmaids kind of do this Really, they're expecting the arrival of the groom so soon that they make no preparations for any kind of delay whatsoever. But Jesus' point is consistent throughout this whole thing. Whether soon coming or long delayed, he's simply saying our job is to be ready always, no matter what. So today I want to suggest two practical ways for us to do that, to be ready always. The first is to notice the important difference between being planned and being prepared. Now, I know sometimes we use these words interchangeably, of course, but I think there's an important difference to be drawn out here. To be planned is to have everything perfectly in order, kind of like putting your dominoes all in a row or having a blueprint for a house. Everything works as long as everything stays perfectly on track. But if a couple dominoes are missing, or if a couple measurements are off in the house, the whole thing is thrown askew, isn't it? And so we also sometimes think this way about our lives. To be prepared is a little bit different. Girl Scouts are prepared. My wife was a Girl Scout, and so it is a very common thing for us perhaps to go to the mall, and we're wandering around with the kids, and all of a sudden something happens, and we need a Band-Aid, and lo and behold, she has one. Why? I say to her, why would you have a Band-Aid? We're at the mall. How did you know injury would happen here? I didn't. I'm a Girl Scout. <laughs> I'm prepared. Or we're at the airport, and, uh, and our flights are delayed, and it's the middle of the night, and all the restaurants are closed, and we're hungry, and we're all looking around, ready to eat a chair, and she's getting a granola bar out of her backpack. And I'm like, where did you? She says, I'm a Girl Scout. I'm prepared. Girl Scouts are prepared. The same is true of trauma doctors. We have several of these in our congregation, and you can't really be planned for everything that comes into the trauma doctor station. And they can't tell us these stories. They're bound by HIPAA laws, but I'm sure some really weird stuff comes in that they have to figure out how to deal with. They couldn't possibly have planned for everything that might happen on a night shift in the ER. They're prepared to deal with it when it comes through the doors, regardless. In today's parable, the five silly bridesmaids were planned they had their torches, they were ready, they were expecting. But when the groom is late, they had no plan B. 
And so it is also perhaps with us. If we get caught up in all the what and the when of this promised return, we also tend to move towards having a plan rather than being prepared. And that brings me to the second thing that I think is worth noticing if we want to be ready always. And that is simply to always live with the end in view. Always live with the end in view. So I love pizza. And there was a commercial some years ago by Tombstone brand pizza. And they said, what do you want on your tombstone? It's catchy and it kind of threw you off when it's in the midst of a game on TV or something like that. What do you want on your tombstone? There's a cartoon that I have here that they ask that very same question. One guy says to the other, you ever wonder what character trait you'd like people to talk about, you, uh, talk about at your funeral? Something you're really proud of? Something you'd like to be known for? And the guy says, parallel parking. <laughs> and the other one says back, some would choose kindness or some other great thing. And the guy replies, guess they can't parallel park. <laughs> it's a great example, though, of how we can easily and often miss the whole point of life on earth and make it all about secondary, third, fourth, fifth, tenth tier things. Popular author David Brooks in a book called The Road to Character has wisely named the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Eulogy as in a funeral. You know what resume virtues are. They're the things that we want to put on our resume, our education, our experience, our accomplishments, those kinds of things. But it's ultimately at a funeral that we learn the things that are the most important. And the things that are on a resume don't often get spoken of at a funeral. Other things do, don't they? I mean, think about it. If, if you want to be remembered at your funeral as a person who kept the candle burning all the time, do you want to be a person who is one that is described later as one who did not waste your life? Do you want to be remembered as a person who lived a whole life long of faith, hope, and love? Do you want to be a person who enacted the things of our very Lent journey that we're doing right now, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, etc.? Do you want to be a person who is described at your own funeral as one who didn't live to be comfortable all of your days, but who put, had your only comfort in the fact that you belong, body and soul, life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all your sins, and so you live every day wholeheartedly for him because he is your Lord and Savior, teacher and friend. If you want people to say that stuff about you at your funeral, then why don't we live that way now? And if we did that, I think we would be ready to rest easy and always ready for the return of the King and all of that joy. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Friends, in our response this morning, I invite you to stand. And we'll sing together as we seek to be ready that we would find our strength in the everlasting God. Let's sing together.
church where you can clap on any beat you want. <laughs> we are an accepting community. <laughs> hey, I said at the beginning of the message that this was a text today that I had some embarrassment about, but the full circle truth is that having lived with it for a week long, I've come to love it all the more. And to live with an awareness, a heightened awareness of the promised king coming back is a true gift. I hope that you can do that as well, focusing not on the what and the when, but on the who as you go from this place. May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen and amen. We're going to sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here Peace.